Coming up, the red planet may have looked a lot more Earth-like when it was a baby. So it looks like Mars went through a, a more oxygen-rich environment before the Earth did. Mars has much more in common with Earth than one would have imagined from looking at it today. And this man claims to have made a working quantum computer. The D-Wave 1 and its descendants, they are going to change the landscape of computing forever. We'll be finding out from reporter Nicola Jones if you should be looking to trade in your laptop. Plus why naked mole rats don't get cancer. This is The Nature Podcast. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. We've been hearing about quantum computers for decades, but are they finally here? Traditional computers use bits which carry information as either ones or zeros, whilst a quantum computer uses quantum bits or qubits which carry information as both one and zero at the same time. In theory, this allows quantum computers to investigate many possibilities at once, vastly speeding up certain calculations. Sounds simple, but it's anything but. Enter a man called Geordie Rose and his company D-Wave. Rose claims to have made a working commercial quantum computer, but scientists around the world remain sceptical about just how quantum this quantum computer really is. Nicola Jones has written a feature this week about the quantum controversy. Noah Baker spoke to Nicola, starting off with the question on everybody's lips. Do we have a quantum computer? <laughs> so, and we don't really know. <laughs> so there's this one company in Burnaby, uh, Canada, which says it's making a quantum computer. It's a special kind of quantum computer. It's not the universal quantum computer that most academics have been trying to make. This particular computer, it's something called an adiabatic computer, and you can read my feature to find out exactly what that means. But basically it means it's optimized to solve one particular kind of problem, and that's called a optimization problem. The classic example of this is if you're having a, a wedding, and you have a bunch of people, some of whom must sit together and some of whom really should not sit together, and you want to find the best possible way to arrange all of your guests at your tables, that's a kind of optimization problem, and this computer is very well suited to doing that. Whether it's actually operating in a quantum regime or not, whether it's exploiting this fuzziness of bits to be both one and zero at the same time, is under debate. So what is causing this debate? So you can make an ordinary computer that is an adiabatic computer that doesn't use quantumness at all. So the question that some people have is, well, if you spend, you know, $100 million and have very many very smart people trying to design this computer and make it really good at solving this particular kind of problem, maybe you can get a really good computer that way, even if it's not quantum. There's been some quite high-profile sales of these computers. Google have bought them. And you'd have thought that Google would look into this quite a lot beforehand. <laughs> is that a suggestion that perhaps it is a quantum computer? So Lockheed Martin, an aerospace company, and a consortium involving both Google and NASA, you're right, have either purchased or acquired these computers. They're being very quiet about how much they've actually gone for. And it, yeah, sure, that lends support to the idea that these things are certainly useful and definitely interesting. Tell us about the man behind D-Wave, Geordie Rose. And after that, we'll play a clip of him talking earlier this year. He's described himself as an evangelist pitching the vision of quantum computing to people. He's very convincing. He's very good at getting people to 
see things the way that he sees them and invest in his vision. Back in 1999, Jordy Rose um, took this course in entrepreneurship at the University of British Columbia while he was doing his PhD. And he kind of decided to make a quantum computing company before he knew what a quantum computer was, and certainly before he had any idea how to make one, before anyone had an idea how to make one. So he founded this company uh, with this vision. And then he went around taking the seed money that he had and using that to fund research groups to try and find the best way to build one of these things. And then he went about building one. We knew more in the early 2000s about quantum computing as an organization than any other organization on the planet. Usually in technology, we're used to seeing things getting smaller and smaller, but D-Wave's machine you describe as being the size of a sauna. What exactly does it look like and why is it so big? Well, that's what I thought as well. I thought, oh, you know, we're back to the old days. Look at this giant computer. But it's a little bit misleading. So for various technical reasons, these computers have to operate at ridiculously cold temperatures, 20 millikelvin, some of the coldest temperatures that we can achieve. So the cooling system takes up the bulk of the computer. And the actual quantum chip is the size of my pinky fingernail. But the idea is not that everyone would have a quantum computer in their home. I mean, people like NASA can you know, have the space to install one of these suckers. But the idea is in future, if quantum computing becomes more useful and more um, needed by a lot of different people, then you would just access it over the cloud. You can just send your problem to a quantum computer and get the answer back. And you mentioned that, that D-Wave have taken this technique of, of using the adiabatic uh, method, which you said is very good at one particular type of problem, which I assume is, goes slightly further than just wedding planning. But yes, does that mean that to start with, this computer is going to be limited in terms of what it can do in the long run? Jordy Rose would say that um, almost all important questions can be phrased as optimization questions anyway. Uh, you just have to think about how to phrase it. Anyway, in addition to wedding plans, the kinds of things that are well-suited to optimization problems are things like uh, something they call binary classification, where you need a computer to learn. So those kinds of artificial intelligence type questions, it can be very good at. Optimization is actually at the core of all the things that make us humans. Now the, the trick is that optimization is fundamentally hard. It's the type of thing that conventional computers like we use today are not good at. The D-Wave 1 and its descendants are ideally suited to solving that type of problem and they are going to change the landscape of computing forever. That was Geordie Rose ending that conversation between Noah Baker and Nicola Jones. Coming soon, it's the research highlights, the best from outside nature this week, including fluorescent eels and ocean litterbugs. First, though, naked mole rats. Bless them. They live underground and look a bit like bald, shriveled-up rats. They might not win the beauty pageant, but physiologically they are superstars of the animal kingdom. They can live for decades and they never get cancer. This week, researchers at the University of Rochester in New York suggest a molecule which may be playing a part in these superpowers, hyaluronin or HA. HA helps make up the extracellular matrix, the stuff outside cells, giving them a kind of molecular hug. It also happens to be the very molecule that makes the naked mole rat's skin so wrinkly and stretchy. Ewan Calloway spoke to Andrei Seloanov about these crinkled, cancer-proof critters. Naked morad, they live up to 32 years, that's a maximum lifespan. And compared to mice, who lives only you know, three years, it's almost like 10 times longer. 
And on top of that, they're also extremely cancer resistant. How have people in the past explained why they don't get cancer? When we are growing the naked molded cells, uh, we find out that actually uh, cells are producing uh, some kind of molecules, which is, makes the media really viscous. And we are thinking, okay, this could be some, something important for the cancer resistance uh, of those cells. And we start to look for this molecule that makes the media really viscous. And uh, what we found, actually, it was the hyaluronone. And, of course, based on that, we already started to build the research, which is presented in the Nature paper. What does this molecule do normally? It's a major component of the extracellular matrix. It means everywhere where we have the cells, we have the matrix surrounding the cells. Why do you think this molecule that was making uh, your growth media so viscous had a role in cancer protection? Now, on that time, when I just you know, first guessed it, I was thinking that something new, which we never observed in any, any of the tissue cultures before. And that was just a wild guess. So it's just a hunch? Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. How did you turn that hunch into experiments? Uh, what we did, we took the naked morad cells and we put uh, into the immunodeficient mice and put the cells under the skin. Uh, these cells don't form the tumor. Now, if you take the same cells and uh, you inactivate the molecule, which is responsible for production of HA, usually it's HA synthetase, or you express the enzyme, uh, which is responsible for the breakage of the HA, as I mentioned before, and you put it in a naked molded cells. Now this cells is able to form the tumor. And that was pretty strong evidence because, you know, this HA is really needed uh, for this tumor uh, suppression in naked molded cells. You can think about the tissues as a network of this uh, collagen and HA, uh, a lot of the matrix, and the cells sitting like in a prison. And if you have the long branches of these molecules and it protects the cells from the escaping out of this prison. And in naked molecules, we found the really long molecules. The HA, uh, it has a two effects. First of all, uh, it prevents the cells from hyperproliferation, what is typical for the human cancer or mouse cancer. And the second is also building this network of the, like, the cage-like system, and the cells is very difficult to move out of that prison when it already sits inside. And the cancer cells, they need to get out. And actually, most of the human cancer cells, they're expressing the specific enzymes who is breaking the HA to the smaller fragments, which allow them to break out of that cage and to propagate everywhere. I mean, is this acting only uh, around the skin, or is this acting all over their body? It's all over the body, yes. It's, it's absolutely general phenomenon. But the amount of HA is really high under the skin because HA, that's what gives us, uh, you know, our skin a uh, nice look when we are young because, you know, it's a smooth skin it's because of the HA. And uh, with age, actually, we are losing HA, and that's why we are getting the wrinkles. But it's present in the other tissues as well. We have it in heart and, and blood vessels almost everywhere. How would you translate these findings first to mice and, and then to humans, which definitely do get cancer? Uh, the next level, that's exactly what we are doing right now, is to make the transgenic mice, uh, to put this naked morad gene into the mice, and to let them to produce the high amount of HA and see if that mice will be really uh, resistant to, tumor, uh, to cancer transformation uh, and how long this mice is going to live. Of course, we are not planning to make the, <laughs> the transgenic human, uh, but it's possible to, because we're still, we're still using the same enzyme, uh, we still have the same enzyme that we have in mice, uh, in naked morad, it means we can use this enzyme for the drug targeting. 
Would it also protect against wrinkles? Ah, <laughs> uh, possibly. <laughs> that was Andrei Seluanov on the line from New York. Later on in the show, a peek at Mars's younger days. Now it's time for the research highlights, selected and read by Daniel Cressy. Japanese freshwater eels are a tasty treat in their native land, where they're eaten with rice. But these animals also produce a fluorescent protein, the first to be identified in a vertebrate. Scientists in Japan identified the gene that encodes this protein and named it unagi, after unagi, the Japanese word for these eels. When expressed in mammalian cells, the protein produces green fluorescence. Unagi is inactive until it binds to a compound called bilirubin, derived from hemoglobin, which means that unagi can be used to measure the levels of bilirubin in human blood. It might also be useful as a laboratory tool, alongside other widely used fluorescent proteins. Humans are dumping far more litter into the ocean than has generally been appreciated. A team based in California used a database of observations from over two decades worth of submersible missions plumbing the depths of Monterey Bay. They found rubbish ranging from a PVC pipe 25 metres down to a plastic bag at almost 4,000 metres. The litter, which was mainly metal and plastic, was seen in 1.5% of the surveyed area. Most of the debris was seen below 2,000 metres. Earlier studies may have underestimated the impact of detritus on these deep regions, which are generally poorly observed. Deep canyons may have trapped and funneled the debris to depth. To learn what Mars is made of, you have two choices. You can go there, like NASA's Mars rovers, Curiosity most recently, and the Spirit and Opportunity buggies which were dropped onto the planet in 2004. Or you can find bits of Mars that have landed on Earth, meteorites, shards of the planet that ricocheted off when it was hit. One might assume that the two methods would give you similar answers, but they don't. Meteorites tend to be made of younger rock, and the chemical composition is different to rocks found lying on the planet's surface. Bernard Wood and his team from the University of Oxford think they can explain the difference, and their idea has implications for the deep history of Mars. Here's Bernard. We've known about this class of meteorites for quite a while. Uh, they contain small amounts of Martian atmosphere. Now, we know what the Martian atmosphere composition is, it was measured by one of the Voyager missions in the 1970s. And this particular group of meteorites, people had thought they might come from Mars for quite a while. But then it was discovered that they actually had trapped bits of this Martian atmosphere in them, which is the proof that they come from Mars. What geologically might account for the fact that these meteorites were at one point buried deep within Mars and now they are the little bits of them are on the Earth's surface? They are volcanic rocks. Um, like the surface rocks, they're all volcanic rocks. So they've been brought to Mars's surface by volcanism and, and erupted on Mars's surface. And then they've been splashed off of Mars by an impact at some point. So there we are. We've got these meteorites on Earth. And I suppose people assumed, well, this must be what Mars geologically looks like. Yes. I mean, the, the, the range of meteorite types was such that we thought we had very good coverage of Mars's uh, external composition, that is the outside rocky part of Mars. And so we built models of Mars based on this suite of rocks. Now, when the rovers started to wander around on the, uh, on the surface, they discovered that there were quite significant differences between the surface rocks and our meteorites, which we had considered to be typical of Mars. Mm. And the point of your paper, then, is to try and explain these differences? Exactly. 
So together, the three of us developed this model of how oxygen could perhaps explain the difference between the old surface rocks measured by the rover and the much younger meteorites which have been analysed in the labs on Earth. Uh, basically, we can explain the difference if the surface rocks come from a region deeper within Mars, which is more oxygen-rich than the region from which the meteorites come from. So am I right in thinking, then, that the old rocks are oxidised? They're the ones that Spirit and Opportunity were digging up and analysing. And in the meteorites, we have younger rocks that are not oxidised. What gave rise to that difference? What we're showing is that these old volcanic rocks that have been analysed on the surface are consistent with oxidation, with this oxy oxygen-rich environment being recycled down into, the, into Mars' interior into the region where melting was taking place. But the old rocks are more oxidised than the young rocks, which suggests to us that the oxidation of Mars took place very, very early in Mars' history. Right, I see. So these surface rocks have come full circle. They used to be on the surface billions of years ago where they became oxidised, then they got recycled into the mantle and then they resurfaced again, whereas the meteorites are younger and they didn't get oxidised at all. So this suggests then that the atmosphere was very oxygen-rich, but only very long ago. It's been suggested, of course, Mars, Mars is red, it's rusty, it's, it's red because of oxidised iron in the surface rocks, um, and it's been suggested previously that very early in its history, Mars was wet and relatively warm and also fairly oxygen-rich. It sounds like Mars might have at one point been tantalisingly close to somewhere that life could have been. Well, of course, that's, that's what excites people, and that, that's what we found exciting. It looks like Mars was, was very oxygen-rich 4,000 million years ago, whereas on Earth we know that oxygen wasn't very high in concentration in the, in the atmosphere until much more recently, 2,500 million years ago or thereabouts. So it looks like Mars went through a, a more oxygen-rich environment before the Earth did. So Mars has much more in common with Earth in terms of its environment than, than, than one would have imagined from looking at it today. Damn, but still no Martians. Unless the oxygen in the atmosphere was created by uh, little green men photosynthesising, there's no, no proof that there's life. Of course, on Earth, oxygen, the, the rise in, in atmospheric oxygen was due to life. On Mars, it's most likely that the oxygen was created by the breakdown of water molecules in the sun's radiation. It breaks down into oxygen plus hydrogen, and this is the most likely mechanism by which Mars had a, uh, created an oxygen-rich atmosphere. Finally this week, the news chat, and we're lucky to be joined today by not one, but two of Nature's news team. Hello to Richard Van Norden and Ewan Calloway. Hi there. Hello. In just a moment, Ewan will be telling us about some dogged reporting he's been doing this week, you'll see. But first, Richard, we're off to the Supreme Court, where a decades-long battle over gene patenting has come to kind of a messy end this week. This is a very historic but also very confusing decision from the US Supreme Court. At first, um, it seems like a victory for people who say that you shouldn't be able to patent human genes that's what the Supreme Court decided on 13th of June, ending a practice that they've been awarding patents on human genes for about 30 years, but no longer. So that seems simple enough and a great victory for people who've been saying, how can you give someone uh, effectively ownership of something that occurs in the human body? 
The main company behind all of this or involved in these cases is Myriad Genetics, who are trying or have been trying over the years to patent two breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Myriad had lots of patents relating to BRCA1 and BRCA2 and testing for mutations in these genes. And they've now lost their patents on the particular sequences that refer to these mutations. But in fact, they have lots of other patents relating to the diagnostic tests uh, to work out whether you've got mutations in these genes which tend to predispose you towards breast cancer. So it's not entirely clear that this ruling on its own consigns Myriad's earnings to history. That said, as soon as as this ruling was announced, other companies did come in and say, we can now um, announce our tests for BRCA1 and BRCA2, uh, which are much cheaper. It's actually not clear whether they're going to make a run around Myriad's patents by doing so, whether they just made a a sort of ad hoc announcement. Uh, The appeals will, will no doubt go on for years on this particular topic. So part of this mess is that the market is now being flooded by competitors for Myriad. But part of it is that they haven't ruled out patents on genes kind of in total, have they? It's not a blanket ban. You can still modify genes or gene products and get a patent for that. This is exactly the confusion. The Supreme Court said you can't patent a gene, but you can patent something that you have derived from a gene synthetically in the laboratory. Then the question is, how much change do you have to make in order for something to be patentable? And if you can't patent a human gene because it's a product of nature in the body, can you patent a human protein that is found in your body? And this ruling will likely be applied to proteins, genes. What about short stretches of synthetic DNA that also occur in the body? If you're making something in the lab but it's a copy of something in the body, you know, where does this distinction between something in nature and something that you make in the lab start and end. And it's not entirely clear from the Supreme Court's decision, which will have to be interpreted by lower courts and patent examiners. But from what you just said, it sounds like this is a question for lawyers and not scientists then. Exactly so. It'll be the lawyers who say, can you patent this, can you patent that, that will uh, make very clear how this ruling is to be applied and used. I mean, this is important because... Obviously, the question about patent law is it's supposed to help biotech companies uh, recover the money that they put in to to find these ways of of testing for genetic diseases and so on. And the court has to be careful. Um, If you don't give any patents at all, the argument is that no one will do any of the work of sequencing genes and so on. On the other side, if they give lots and lots of patents and everyone protects them, then this will stifle innovation. I think the ruling suggests they've clearly gone too far until now on just liberally giving patents to everything. I mean, right now, people are just opening champagne and celebrating. It seems like a fantastic judgment. But for the biotech companies and the lawyers, the arguments and the worry is just beginning. More clients, more champagne? Well, the lawyers (laughs) win either way. So the confusion and the mess created by the Supreme Court there over patents and now to a downright dogfight among geneticists studying dogs. Ewan. Right. So a a dogfight has emerged over dog domestication among several teams of geneticists that are trying to figure out where, when, and how wild wolves were transformed into pet pooches. Three groups, uh, three papers recently out, is quite an important problem for geneticists. Why are they so bothered about dog domestication? Because it's an interesting question. I mean, to quote one of my sources, dogs are sexy. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's one of the biggest questions. Dog, dogs were the first animal that humans domesticated. They are the animal that we're most closely associated with. And they're probably the animal that we've changed the most. So where did it all start, I guess, is what a lot of geneticists and archaeologists are asking. 
And they're asking that in these papers by looking at the genome. What exactly are they, are they looking for? The gist of it is that you take the genomes of modern wolves, compare those to the genomes of modern dogs, and say some things about the genes and the uh, uh, population genetic differences. So all the studies looked at some of the genes that set apart dogs and wolves, and those tend to be genes involved in brain development, which makes sense. Dogs are much friendlier than wolves. And also, and this is where it gets kind of contentious, we see genes involved in starch digestion, um, marking dogs uh, apart from wolves. So dogs have diversions of these genes that are better at digesting starches. And if you remember from the Nature podcast back in January, Shurston Lindblad Toe at Uppsala University and the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard came out of the podcast and said, seeing these starch genes selected, that, that suggests that dogs were domesticated right around the time that humans started settling down and growing crops, uh, you know, wheat and things like that. Not so, say, some other scientists, archaeologists and geneticists, who point out that skeletons that look a lot like dogs predate the Neolithic, predate the dawn of agriculture by thousands of years. So how the hell did were dogs domesticated, you know, during the Neolithic when they already existed. Um, so this has kind of gone back and forth. A new paper that was just published about two weeks ago uh, suggests, you know, that dogs were domesticated pre-Neolithic. Um, but it also suggests that we really don't know exactly when dogs were domesticated, and that's because the wolf population that gave rise to dogs has gone extinct. And so the only way to answer this question is by sequencing the genomes of ancient dogs and wolves, which is underway in labs all over the world. We'll have to wait for the ancient wolf genome to be sequenced before we know anything else. Lots of ancient wolf genomes, actually. Okay, well, thank you to both. And you can find more on each of those stories all for free at nature.com slash news. And that's your lot for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Also new this week, the third episode of the Nature Pastcast. And it's back to 1876 when the arrival of a live gorilla in Europe gives life to the debate over man's place in nature. That's available on the podcast feed or at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. And also going live today, a podcast extra about the mysterious afterlife of King Tutankhamun. Charlotte Stoddart spoke to science writer Jo Marchant about her newest book, The Shadow King, which pieces together King Tut's life and death from his mummy. Do let us know what you think of our podcast, won't you, at podcast at nature.com. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. Thea Cunningham.